Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a very special episode for you. Academy Award winner Gary Oldman joins me to discuss his extraordinary performance in David Fincher's latest film, Mank. Oldman plays Herman J. Mankiewicz, a.k.a. Mank, the celebrated screenwriter with a razor-sharp wit who co-wrote Citizen Kane with Orson Welles. The narrative is one big circle like a cinnamon roll, not a straight line pointing to the nearest exit. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. But nobody expects Shakespeare. People aren't spending their hard-earned 25 cents to see Macbeth. Maestro the dark-faced boy did Macbeth. Voodoo, Macbeth. Don't be fooled. He's a showman, busker, reveling in sleight of hand. Save yourself the trouble. Be done in 60 days. He'll get this, and the audience will too. Stop worrying. Have a pickle. No, thank you. I'm not hungry. Haven't been since we got here. Cheerio. Right hard. Aim low. On a personal note, I have to say this film's depiction of the golden age of Hollywood, the creative process, power, friendships, personal demons, all of it, it's just exquisite. Gary talks about why he wanted to be a part of this film how his own experience with alcoholism informed his performance, why he felt daunted by Fincher's directive not to transform physically for the role, and why he has so much admiration for the way Fincher approaches the work. We also talk about the arc of his own career and one of his most memorable performances. Plus, he shares his advice for young actors just starting out. So I wanted to go back to when you first heard about this movie and, you know, how this movie first came to you and what what your reaction was when, when that script, uh, when you opened that script and read it. Initially, I was just, I, I mean, I, obviously I was very excited before I'd read the script because it ticked a box of mine. I've worked with some wonderful directors over the years and David was certainly, you know, on that, on that list. Uh, so that was very exciting that it was a Fincher movie. And then to just read this glorious writing by his, by his dad, Jack Fincher. I mean, if I had any reservations, you know, you, you think, oh, it's a story about, a, you know, a writer in Hollywood and is it too a little bit sort of in, in, sort of in baseball, as they say. And not only that, he's lying down, so he's in bed for most of it. I thought, how, how, how exciting could I make that? But uh, it was one of the, really one of the best scripts I, I, I had read in a, in a long time. And I was just thrilled to be, um, to be asked to do it and very, 
I was very, very thrilled, very honored. Mm. I mean, obviously, Herman Mankiewicz is a brilliant man uh, who is deeply, you know, had had a lot of turmoil. Yeah. <laughs> was was he someone that did you know about him before you had read the script? Was he were you aware of this this character of Mank? Is he because he is a real was a real person? Yeah. I really was more, I was more aware of Joseph, the brother, just because of his achievements. I mean, in my mind, you know, in, in many, many people's opinion, you know, that All About Eve is one of the great all-time all screenplays and, and, and films. Mm -hmm. um, and he had, a, he had a, a, a huge career. So I was more aware of Joseph than I was of... Herman Mankiewicz, and vaguely knew that, that you know there was that that connection with Wells, and that he had done a bit of sort of script doctoring and a bit of writing for the Marx Brothers. But um, it was a whole, basically, it was it was a, a blank canvas to me. Mm -hmm. Well, you've said, and I love this, uh, so I hope it's true. <laughs> <laughs> You've talked about how acting isn't necessarily an intellectual pursuit, but it's more mm. of a sensation and a feeling. And I wonder what was that for you with this character with Mank? What was that sensation that um, got you to this character? That doorway. You know, the process is it's. Uh... It's all still a bit of a mystery. Um, there's a certain, obviously there's a certain amount of, of work, of head work that you need to do with, with a character like this because there isn't, there's, I mean, there's quite a bit of information out there on, on him and there are, uh, there's no footage of him tiny, tiny little cameo he did in an early movie, which doesn't really tell you very much. And it's all anecdotal. You know, he said this, he said that, he did this, he did that. So there's that work that you, that, that you, you know, you, ga you, you gather, gather the information um, as, 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 as much as you can. But I've also said that you could do, you know, if you were playing Hamlet, you could read every book there is on uh, on on Hamlet. You could holiday in Denmark and whatever you know, whatever kind of work you would do in that respect or research, I guess as it's called. Um, but I've always said you can do all of that, but on opening night, that won't help you stand there and say to be or not to be. Now, I've had my, you know, Mank was an alcoholic, and I have, uh, I've been in recovery now for almost 24 years. Um, but I do remember what it was like. So in that respect, I could bring a lot to the party. Because you have to sort of get inside not only a brilliant mind, but a drunk mind. And that to me, was very obvious from, from what I was sort of researching or looking at. You see it in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, he turns on everyone who wants to help him. You know, drunks want an enemy. 
they need a they need a villain. He he really he really had some villains there. So there's a lot of your own. It's a lot of my own experience, really, that I gave, that, that, that I, I brought with me. Here's the other interesting thing. You know, you take, you take a, a, a role like Churchill and there's, you know, he wrote 50-something books. There's hundreds of books written about the man. Every moment of his waking life is documented. And you have footage, you have speeches, you have all of this thing to, to, to gravitate to, and also um, the physicality, you know, that I don't really think I could have been a convincing Churchill without the prosthetics, but you have, that, that also you have, you have a mask, you have all this voluminous uh, material, and you have a mask. David did not want any, any trick. He didn't want anything. He didn't want a wig. He didn't want a false nose. He didn't want false teeth. He said to me, I want you to be as naked as you have ever, ever been. And I do like, you know, I like a nose or a pair of glasses to hide behind. (laughs) Give me, me I don't know, a glass eye or a scar or something, a patch. A wig, you know. It just seems that it just seems that that's happened to me over the years. You know, with these various characters I played. So that was incredibly challenging and very daunting, and I resisted it at first. And it wasn't until I started to kind of move and breathe in 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 the in the language and in in the script and in the clothes and the shoes that I realized, I thought, you know, Dave was right. This, this, is, this, is, this is good. No, no fireworks, no, uh, no fancy dress. Just come in and be as completely open and as naked um, as you can be. I haven't really answered your question about how do you get into it. <laughs> Well, specifically, I wanted to know what that moment was when you've got, oh, I've got Mank. This is it. This is my, this is the essence of, of him. So you, you, Well, I think that started, it, you know, it, it's, it varies. Sometimes it can be a certain physicality. It can be a gesture. It could be the way a character moves, walks, hunches their shoulders. I mean, there's all sorts of little keys that unlock a door for you to get into a character. With this one, it was it was a, a vocal thing. I think with this one, that really got the got got the ball rolling was was finding the voice. Now there's no recording of Mank, but there's plenty of recordings of Joe Mankiewicz, and I thought to myself, you know, the apple probably isn't full far from the tree. So that was what I started to work on, that that real dry delivery, that sort of throwaway delivery in it, it, with the voice of Joseph Mankiewicz. And that's kind of where I started. That's not necessarily where I ended up, 
Hmm. But you look, you, you begin with an impersonation and then you, you own it and you start to make it your own thing. And uh, so you've got that, you know, you've got the, the, the basic root sound and timbre from Joe. And then you add a bit of smoking and some whiskey uh, or a lot of whiskey on top of that voice. And uh, you give it a pinch of uh, Burgess Meredith. Hmm. And um, you, uh, you know, you, you have mank. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely you have Mank. And in Mank, it's just, uh, it's, he's so funny and he's so alive. That, Gary, you made him so alive in a bed with, with a body cast, essentially. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's what I thought was so incredible. Yes, with the flashbacks, we see you, obviously, but there's a there's a big portion of it when you are, like you had said earlier, just flat out and in a cast and yeah. and limited physically as an actor. Well, it was, yeah, it was interesting. It was, a, it was, I've played my share of sort of rather energetic, you know, frenetic characters. So that, that in itself was, um, it was, it was challenging and it was actually a relief. <laughs> I'd get out of bed and come into work and get back into bed. It was um, in that respect. It was quite. It was quite a sweet gig. <laughs> um, actually, going back to your other question about the, the of finding a character, um, uh, apart from all of that stuff I talked about, you know, movement, you know, moving of the voice, and which again goes back to that thing of you, you, you. Feel it. It's a sensation. It is the muscles in the mouth. It's the, the the tongue and the teeth, and all of that is is vital. But but I also have his writing. It's what he wrote, and that also gives you a wonderful clue into the character. He's so funny. Oh my god! And we know what others thought of him as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Orson Welles described him, who loved him dearly, loved Mank dearly, said that he was the perfect monument to uh, self-destruction. He, he embodied the, the very essence of it and was very bitter and, inc- and of course, incredibly funny. And Wells said that when that bitterness or that, that vile bile wasn't aimed at you, he said he was, he, he was the funniest man on the earth. Now, some people have said, going back to the old days at the, around the, you know, the Algonquin table in the early days, that even when, even when that bile was, was, was aimed at you, he was so funny that you would laugh in spite of yourself. I have no trouble believing that. <laughs> um, and, and, of course, it's peppered with, uh, or with, you know, what we try to do in that regard, because there's wonderful quotes. You can go, you know, you could just, you can Google, you know, Herman Mankiewicz quotes. Um, what we try to do 
which I thought, which is where, where David and, well, where Jack and, and, and then David was clever, is not to make it all about, you know, the greatest hits and you just overload the, the script with, um, with, with all the funny lines. Mm-hmm. So they're spe- we 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 use them sparingly, but when we but when we use them, and there's a wonderful I think a wonderful line that uh, it may Jack came up with, and maybe it was even David in in a rewrite. When I arrive at San Simeon on the the day when I wake up and I'm hungover, and there is Mayor and Irving uh, watching this sort of crazy shoot of a a home movie going on with, with Hurst and Marion. And I, uh, and I say, Oh, I'm on my, I'm on my way over there. Any notes from the oversight tent? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, uh, come on. I mean, you can't, you give really, I mean, you got, as long as you can walk and chew gum at the same time, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard. To, it would be very hard to mess that one up. You know, so I had some, glorious lines in this film and I relished and enjoyed saying them (laughs) well I as a viewer enjoyed watching it was just delicious and you really pay attention to them and then you think about and it makes them even funnier uh, one of the things I found very interesting in in this story which I find uh, parallels many many lives and certainly those in the creative sphere is that conflict between the person we want to be mm. and the person we end up being yeah. to kind of make a living in the world or exist in the world. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Well, he looked down on screenwriting. Um, and he, I think he sort of felt that it was beneath him. It was beneath his... His his talent is, you know. I think he had uh, aspirations of being a great playwright, a great novelist, and that's where that's what sort of separated the men from the boys. You know, that was that was that was true writing, great literature, and and writing for the movies was. Um, he had such a disdain for it, mm-hmm. and I mean, he we 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 look back on it now. Of course, he didn't realise at the time of what a seismic shift he had in movie making. Now, you don't necessarily you you when you're in the moment of of, of doing it, you don't always. You don't realise that you're turning the evolutionary wheel a notch, and and he did. He invited so many wonderful writers to Hollywood, who really, I wouldn't say necessarily changed the genre. They came up with a genre that sort of witty, fast-paced. Uh, New York kind of wisecracking banter 
really, it, 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 you know, he was, resp- he was responsible for that. And also, when you're a script doctor, which he, which he kind of basically was, you, you know, you're going to hand in your script. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to pour your life into a script that is then going to be rewritten and then rewritten and then rewritten and then changed. And, 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 and at the end of the day, you don't even get, you don't even have your name on it. Mm. For, for our listeners, Gary, I'm going to explain what a script doctor is. It's basically a writer who gets a script and is instructed to make it better or add some jokes or, or improve upon it. And to your point, oftentimes it goes to many, many different writers. And in the end, it ends up being whoever's name was originally on it gets the credit. Yeah. So, you know, a script would be, uh, you know, a script, it it would have problems and, um, you know, an executive would say, well, let's run it through Manx typewriter and see what you can come up with. I mean, you know, do do you know, you know the story about, um, I mean, it's, it's touched on in the film in, in passing, but you know the story about, um, the Wizard of Oz and his involvement with that film. Why don't you tell us? Well, he, it was, it was, see, it was Mag who, the, the whole canvas, uh, ca- canvas, Kansas sequence, um, the writer of the book now, whose name escapes me, it, it, it gives a couple of thousand words to Kansas. And Mank in that first draft, wanted to root Dorothy and those people in a reality so that when you went to the fantastical, you kind of earned it because the film is going one way and then it sort of whips the carpet out from underneath your feet and surprises you. And I remember, everybody remembers, and I remember as a kid watching the film and that moment where Dorothy steps into Technicolor, it takes your breath away. You're there, you're in Kansas, you're with Dorothy, she's got a little dog, there are the characters that appear, she sings this fantastic song, and you think you're in one movie, and then it takes you into this Technicolor fantasy. Mank felt that you really had to earn it, and you had to establish the characters to really be then to be able to follow them in the, in the, in the, in the narrative. He also came up with the idea that that whole first sequence should be shot in black and white and to capture the writing of the book, the spirit of the book, that she then, when she, when she goes to Oz, it all turns into Technicolor. Hmm. Part of him thought it was just all a piece of crap. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you know, but... And then he was ultimately uh, yeah, fired from the, the, the project and he just moved on. 
as he said in the, as I say in the film, oh, that thing's going to sink the studio, you know. You know, much like that, much like the guy that turned down the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that's, that, that thing's not going, they're <laughs> not going anywhere. Well, I don't know what exactly he was paid, but that, those, those, those ideas are worth their weight in gold. That's the genius of Mank. Yeah, he's, it's, it's a great, that great scene actually that David does alludes to that in the big uh, third act scene with the confrontation with Orson. <laughs> in the middle of that scene, Mank is like, oh, that would be a great ending. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. still, tell, he's, he's always thinking about the story. And uh, that's why he has that, I mean, he adores Marion. But he knows he's onto something and he can't separate. He can't take that writer's hat off. And he says to her, I'm going to have to follow this and go through with it. I cannot put this down or walk away from it. It's too good. It's the best thing I've ever done. And if it's made... You're either going to be my friend or you're not going to be my friend. And my friendship means, your friendship means a great deal to me. But I'm a writer and I'm working on something really special. Hmm. And he can't put, he can't take that hat off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very selfish. Mm-hmm. It, uh, but then it it, it, it is. Art oh, is very. You have to be incredibly selfish. Mm-hmm. Um, it demands a, a, a great. It demands a great deal of you. And I think. Uh, I think. I, I. I mean, in part, I think that's why some of these sort of marriages and relationships don't work. Where where you've got two, you know, two people who are working in the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, you're married to one, but. You always have the calling. Mm-hmm. There's always that mistress. <laughs> the art is the real marriage. <laughs> you know. Right. No. Certainly, certainly it has been for me and, uh, you know, and you do, you just age, you just get wiser, hopefully, and you realize where the important things in life. You just get older, you have children, all of those things, and then you realize where your priorities are. But it's um, it demands so much of your energy, emotional uh, energy. And look what man! I mean, look how you know the relationship with Sarah, mm-hmm. who he adored. He adored yeah. her, but, mm-hmm. but he, you, you know, and 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 he's and, you know, and you're and you're an addict. So you you drink and you gamble and. Uh, now, the alcoholism didn't manifest itself in Joe Mankiewicz, but then he had a big gambling problem. Mm-hmm. And he sought out, he went to therapy and got, got, his, got his act together, you know. Also, the film, the, 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 the period falls between really the, the, the sort of coming, putting together Alcoholics Anonymous which I think started around, I think it was like 1935, 36. I mean, there'd always been temperance societies and things like that way, way back, and the, and the evils of, you know, alcohol. 
but um, but Alcoholics Anonymous was really started in the mid in the mid thirties, and and didn't become a fellowship as such until the uh, like nineteen forty six forty seven, and anyone it, 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 it so this this time period this movie and and and, and the height of Manx drinking falls right in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, AA was for people who were on the street drinking paraffin. You know, that was, mm-hmm. you, I mean, now, now we're, so, we're so much more aware of, uh, of the, 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 the evils of addiction, but I think back then. And wasn't it acceptable <laughs> I mean, you would go to lunch with someone and you'd probably have a couple yeah. of bottles of wine. Or, well, it was just know, a different, there was less to do. There was, it was a lot of stress and war, you know, a lot yeah. of other things that people were living with. But, um, and it was, and it was, it was commonplace to have a, mm-hmm. a cocktail cabinet in the office. Mm-hmm. And someone would come and a client would come and you would offer them a, you know, a scotch or a gin. Then you would go and have a long sort of boozy, boozy lunch. Um, But it all comes around again to this thing of, you know, self-loathing. And it feeds the beast. Mm -hmm. It it awakens that, the the, the monkey on the back that you you sort of, that is, I'm not really getting on. I should have done something by now. How old am I? Mm -hmm. I should have written that novel. I should be a famous playwright by now. I'm writing this rubbish. Um, I go in, I work with idiots who don't know what they're talking. I mean, it all, I think it just all, it all piles on. And the only way to really kind of medicate from all of that was, was. Was the booze. Was the booze. Well, I think what's also in, very interesting about your career, and I'm going to transition a little bit here because it is kind of staggering when I went back. There's so many performances, and and I can get a little to that a little bit later. But the the directors you've worked with, from Christopher Nolan to Francis Ford Coppola, Sodenberg, Quaron, Oliver Stone, Tony Scott, uh, Joe yeah. Wright. I mean, so many of them. And earlier you mentioned wanting to work with David Fincher. And I and I want you to talk about that a little bit. Like, what are the characteristics that make it a Fincher film? What's the experience with David Fincher? Well, you know, from the very get-go, there's a vision. There's a very specific vision and idea behind... The, the the film, so it's in that respect. It's like riding in a Rolls Royce, or a, I don't know, sitting in first class. You know, and, you know, and you've got a you know a, a captain up there in the cockpit who's you know just flown thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. You know, you do you sit back and relax and think, well, you know what, this this guy. This guy knows what he's doing. Um, I tell you what did surprise me, because David, as we know, um, is such um, a visualist. You know, there's a, there's there's such 
a vision in terms of the the look of a movie, and especially with this, the 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 framing, you know, the composition of the shots, the lighting, and of course this incredible soundscape that he's put together. He knew got that going in. This wasn't something he then stumbled upon halfway through the film. I mean, he knew exactly how he wanted it to look and sound from from the starting pistol. But, um, so you know you're in good hands in that respect because you've seen the other work and you think, hey, those, those, those movies are great and they look terrific. So you don't have any worries or doubts that he's going to capture the period. Now, with other directors, not necessarily directors I work with, but there are some people where you go, you read the script and you go, my God, this is so delicious. I hope they uh, can fulfill the, the, the promise. I hope how I see it and how it, how it plays, how it feels coming off the page, I hope that they can take this and visualize it and put it on the screen and I won't be disappointed. With David... This era, this um, honorarium to, to the golden age and Hollywood and these characters, and you see, you see the streets and Sunset Boulevard and you see you know, the Paramount Studios. I mean, you can just imagine, I could imagine, I know, oh, David's going to do, David is going to really nail the period and do something extraordinary with it. But the thing that surprised me was the work that we did on the text in rehearsal. Analyzing every scene, sometimes going over just a word, you know, what's, oh, we need to change that. That needs a little bit more sizzle. What's a, what's a good phrase? What's a good word? That's not, that doesn't feel right. Um, what, what, what's, the, what, what's the motivation here? What, now, what does Mank want from the scene? What does Marion want from him here? Um, what's his relationship with, uh, in this moment here, what, how does he feel about Hurst? I mean, we did a sort of deep dive into the text. And that's not to say that the dialogue or texts in the other films were lacking. I mean, I think... Um, you know, Zodiac is one of my one of my favourite Fincher films, and I mean the the the, the writing in it is just superb. Um, but he's the, the, just the work on the character characterization and what we're saying, and does the story make sense? And does that yeah is that clear? Well, you know, he's always he's also he's 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 objective. He's out he's out there sitting in the audience saying, mm, yeah, but would I get that? Would I understand that? Do, do I follow that argument? So that was sort of uh, surprising to me. I had talked to Tom Pelfrey earlier, uh, and he just talked about how much he loved <laughs> uh, being able to do scene after scene, you know, take after take after take, because Fincher obviously is, is a perfectionist and, like you said, likes to get it right, and how... Uh, for him, that was just brought him so much joy uh, to work to work in that way. And I thought about those 
those scenes uh, with the two of you and, and what that meant. And, you know, Fincher is Fincher. I mean, there's a reason why he goes by one name, like Coppola, <laughs> like Soderbergh. Yeah. People immediately identify with that. Yeah. They know. Well, yeah. And the other thing regarding the takes, um, he will not do like takes. I don't, I sort of just un, unnecessarily just doing take after take after mm. take after take for the sake of it. You know, sometimes we, we walked away from things and he said, I, I, I've got it. I've got it. I don't, I don't really need to keep, keep going on this. The, the, here's the wonderful thing about having the opportunity to do many takes is you really start to, you live, you, you really start to live in the word. You, you really, well, let's put it this way. I've always thought it was crazy that, um, uh, production would spend millions and millions of dollars on an elaborate set, spend millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on costume, mm. and then we would get there in front of the camera and we'd have two or three takes and then we'd move on. I've been in many situations like that and, and it puzzles me. Now, I understand that there are budgetary reasons why... You, you can't just do endless takes. But when you look around you sometimes at these sets and these costumes and you think, my word, look at the props, look at the clothes, look at God, this mm-hmm. is marvellous. And then you get two bites of the apple and you're moving on. And I, I, I remember, um, you know, back in the day where you would, you know, a director might do five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten takes. Um, and it's just got progressively worse where it's, um, I feel sometimes like we're making the day and not making the movie. You don't feel that with, with David at all. Well, everybody loves to talk about their favorite Gary Oldman characters and scenes. And I'm sure this must happen to you anytime you leave the house uh, (laughs) on a regular basis. I have my own, of course, uh, you know, just brilliant performances. I mean, I think I'm partial recently, obviously, to Mank. We're talking about that. But yeah, prior yeah. to that, I'd say uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, uh, mm-hmm. Smiley was unbelievable. And, and maybe in part because my father drove a Citroën and just seeing that that you become <laughs> that character. And I have vague memories of this character as a kid, you know, being very famous uh detective spy and the circus and all that but i love that uh jfk mm. perfection true romance perfection sid and nancy dracula the list goes on and on and of course darkest hour which you won the oscar for is there a particular character that you look back on with relish <laughs> and was like god that was fun i i really i can look back now with maturity and say that was a great performance, and I loved it. And and look at that. Well, well, Churchill was was a, a wonderful experience, and not. And I don't say that just because it ended in a it all ended in a gold statue. Just the people meeting the people that and the and the the Churchill family. Uh, 
just really digging in and reading and watching all the footage and visiting, you know, wonderful, having sort of private behind the velvet rope tours of of all these wonderful places and the war rooms. And, I mean, it was just the, the, the journey of Churchill was, partic- was very special. And I, I feel deeply honoured, very, very privileged to have been able to have, been able to have done it. Um, funny enough, a, a character that I love was in a little movie I did called Nobody's Baby. And uh, it was a sort of a comedic role. I have a great memory of that. And uh, The Contender, mm. Shelley Runyon. Um, and that was a wonderful, again, it was a wonderful summer and we were in uh, Richmond and just very, just just good, good memories. I... I'm hypercritical of the work. I do look at the work. I look at the work differently from other people. And you, you, men, you mentioned some good ones there. <laughs> there's, a, there's probably a few I would stomp on, you know, and uh, or or would like to maybe go back and <laughs> reshoot. Um, but I think that's just because. I think a lot of people feel that, mm-hmm. whether they sculpt or paint or write songs, or I think sometimes they just look back and they think it's uh, it's old work, you know, and that's where I was at then. And Alfonso, yeah, Alfonso Caron, of course, was, you know, um, it, it, it was a wonderful experience working with him. I enjoyed that enormously. See, it's not so much the finished result. Yes, I'm, I, I had a great time working on Mank, and we, 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 we see the, the, the final finished version, and I'm very, very proud to be connected to it and to have been a part of it. But I look back at my career sometimes, and it's just about the real, it's about the experience, having the experience of, of coming to work every day and working with some of these incredible people that I work with. Um, that's what I take away. I mean, for, for Mank, for instance, I, what a bunch of, incre- what a bunch of talented, lovely people. Alice Howard, what a guy, what a gentleman. Tom Pelfrey, adored him. So he was... Just great in the role, a wonderful guy. Um, Amanda is just a, a just a sweetheart. Uh, doing those scenes mm. with, with with Lily, I think she's the revelation in the film. Mm-hmm. What a what a what a lovely person she is. So you're coming in, working with these people, not on, not only in these great. Since I have to pinch myself sometimes, you know, there I am in a David in a David Fincher movie playing Mank, and then I get to come in and be surrounded by all these wonderful people: Charles Dance hmm. uh, and Tom Burke, who plays Orson. You know, there, you know, and if that wasn't enough, 
you have Eric Messerschmidt, the director of photography, who is a, just just a darling of a man. <laughs> I mean, you're you're uh, you know, and you have uh, and you have Fincher at the helm. Mm. So good. Um, yeah. I have one more question for you because I, mm-hmm. um, and I always end my interviews with this question. And it may look on the outset like Gary Oldman has had this charm career as an actor, but we know you didn't have anything handed to you. You really had to pursue this on your own. You didn't get into RADA. You did get into another school. You really built this block, this career brick by brick. You started in the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, you worked, you were relentless in your pursuit. What advice do you have for young people who are just starting out in terms of navigating this business on where to focus their energies? What advice would you have for them? Uh, well, when I, things have changed quite dramatically from when I um started so there were opportunities for me that are now that are not afforded to people who are in you know 2020 you know my training was really geared towards theater you know and i went to a you know a drama academy for three years rather than just sort of popping in and out of of acting classes but what i would say is um, no lazy brain, curious, just, and you can't do it, you can't be sort of interested in it or have a passing interest in it. It has to be, it has to be everything. It's the air that you breathe. It's the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning and it's the last thing you think about when you go to bed. No shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. You've got to put the work in. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I knew that there were shortcomings and I had to work on them. And I had to work, I had to work really hard. You know, I, found, I stumbled on an interview with Paul Newman, and he really had to work at it rather than it be a thing that was sort of intuitive. And he would look around him and he'd think, God, these people that could just sort of get up and do it. They just, it's just, it seems so easy for them. And he felt that he really did not have that and that it made him, he had to work twice as hard to sort of get there. That um, it was always a little bit too heady for him. It was always in the head. And he found it very hard to connect, to find the emotion. Um, Where some people, it was like turning on a faucet. They just had it. But really what he was saying was I had shortcomings. I knew I, I could recognize I recognized them and I had to really work. I had to work harder than most people who had it intuitively. And and there's no substitute for it. 
That's, that's what I would say, that you must want it more, more than you want anything else. And also, you've got to remain, you've got to remain hopeful and optimistic. You can't think that you're going to, you know, you're just, you'll go to drama school or go to, uh, I don't know, Juilliard, and then you're going to come out and, and, and work in, in Walmart. Now, you may end up, you may end up, you, you may for a while end up working in Walmart or driving a cab or waitressing or whatever, whatever you end up doing. But you can't, you've got to have the attitude, you know, what do you want to do when you leave Juilliard? I want to be at a great play on Broadway. Uh, I want to work with the best people. Um, so you've got to keep, um, you, you have to keep optimistic um, and grow a thick skin. Hmm. Great advice for life in general. <laughs> I think, yes, you've got to remain, grow a thick skin and remain optimistic. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Gary, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I you. wish we could just carry on the conversation yeah. uh, for I don't know, for the better part of the afternoon. But thank you so much yeah. for your time and your incredible performances in thank you. all the films. And most recently in Mank, it's it's uh, just a pure delight. So thank you well, very much. Well, it's lovely speaking with you. And I'm thrilled that you like it. We're very, I think we're all, we're all very proud of it. And so your, your kind words are, are, are deeply felt. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining me. Mank is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.